Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Megan Conroy from the Accelerationism Research Consortium, as well as a former investigator on the January 6th committee. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about how, how you got to where you are? Where, what, what has your, been your journey on the, <laughs> into the world of right-wing extremism? Oh, wow. That is a great question. I think I started like a lot of extremism kind of researchers or scholars where circa 2014, 2015, when I was in grad school, the focus was definitely on ISIS and Salafi jihadism. And there was always part of me that felt kind of iffy about the research I was doing. I don't speak the language. I like, I don't speak Arabic or Farsi or any of the languages with which kind of that, that space intersects. I've never been to the Middle East or North Africa at the time. I didn't know much about the culture beyond obviously the very Americanized, like war centric lens. So there was always part of me that just felt like I wasn't doing the kind of work that I should be doing ethically. And I definitely didn't feel like I was doing the best work for me. And as part of my time in my in, in grad school, I hit it off with a girl who was from Georgia in the United States, and she was doing her master's thesis on, you know, kind of the KKK and how far-right extremism has changed. And that was not something that we were taught about in grad school. Everything was about, you know, contemporary warfare within the context of our fight against Al-Qaeda, ISIS, et cetera. And I remember reading her thesis and talking to her about this. And I was like, wow, this this feels way bigger. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sensing a lot of these trends in kind of the main, you know, conservative worldviews in the United States and beyond. And I just started kind of shifting gears. And it was really hard to find a job in this space at the time that focused on the far right at all. Obviously, there are a few entities doing that kind of work, but just not many. And so essentially, for those of us who have had this interest in far right extremism before Charlottesville, where everyone suddenly realized it was a problem, it, it, it kind of started as a hobby. And then was able to later manifest as, you know, paid employment. Well, and the good news is that the opportunities for employment continue to come in, uh, it's unfortunately. Bleak. It's bleak. Yeah, I like I have a terrible joke that I make when people ask what I do for a living. And I just am like, well, I don't think I'll ever be out of a job, you know, because right now I'm obviously the, the U.S. Research Fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab. And you know, running the the US centric portfolio there. And obviously, it's just a bummer that we need to have an entire US portfolio dedicated to the study of domestic extremism. But at the same time, it's always been there. Um, I'm glad it's finally getting the attention it deserves. 
You recently did some work on the January 6th committee as an investigator. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came to happen? So at the time, I was a PhD candidate and I was working as an analyst with Moonshot, all based in the UK. And essentially, there was just kind of this recruitment effort for this person that was going to be on what was referred to as the purple team um, on the January 6th committee. And essentially, they were looking for someone who knew extremism, knew social media platforms and the ways that extremist worldviews manifested on these platforms and were increasingly mainstreamed and how that you know, those views culminated in January 6th. And yeah, I basically got an email asking if I was interested. I said, sure, why not? And literally within, I think about a month, I had a job offer and was picking up and moving back to the United States for this job. I noticed there was a, in the, in the final report of the committee, there was a lack of mention of the involvement of Antifa and the FBI and orchestrating the whole thing. Were, were you surprised by that? I was, because we all know it couldn't have happened without Antifa and the FBI coordinating. And, you know, it was a false flag operation. And it's a bummer that the, the people will never know the truth about that. In all seriousness, though, Megan, when, when you were doing this report, what were you most surprised to find? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot to unpack there. I think some of the most surprising elements of the investigation for me, well, number one, from through the, the social media lens was... Anna Dean Jackson, Alex Newhouse, and I wrote about this in a piece for Just Security that was published in early January once we were set free from the, the committee, was essentially that we went in with the the hypothesis that the reason that social media platforms were not actually doing much at all to curb the spread of disinformation surrounding the election results and just, you know, to or to curb the spread of just straight up insightful language by mainstream members of the Republican Party, you know, the sitting president, sitting members of Congress. Um, we we kind of believed that it was about their financial bottom line. But what we found out as a result of, you know, depositions, transcribed interviews, and various, you know, information that was handed over to us when we subpoenaed these entities was that they were not so much concerned about their financial bottom line as they were concerned about reprisals by the Republican Party for, you know, with regard to censorship, censorship and accusations of censorship. And so that is why they made these decisions to kind of treat, especially Donald Trump, like a VIP. He had a VIP status at Twitter. And so that was, as far as the social media investigation goes, I thought that was really interesting. We also, Alex Newhouse and I focused on the kind of quantitative side of things as well, looking at all of the various platforms, not all, but a, a good number, about a dozen different platforms where people were coalescing online and spreading these narratives online and the amount of apocalyptic and bloodthirsty and just incredibly violent and anti-democratic content that was being spread everywhere from Facebook and Twitter to Patriots, well, now Patriots.win, then the Donald.win and 4chan and Acoon, Rumble, uh, any platform, you name it, was hosting this kind of content and the platforms were not moderating it in the way that they could have and should have. Megan, do you think that that pressure has increased over the past few years? Because it does seem somewhat noteworthy that in the coverage of the January 6 events, major media companies should fear reprisals either from the administration or its support base. I was kind of hoping that as a result of the committee's final report that well, I was, frankly, I mean, I was hoping that there would be more about social media in the committee's final report. And I don't think we need to kind of dive into the, the reasonings behind that. I think that's been discussed 
quite a, a bit in, in various interviews and media hits that people have done. But ultimately, these platforms don't seem to be trying harder. Obviously, we've, we're seeing Donald Trump and various folks who had been previously banned by Meta being allowed back on the platform. Obviously, we don't need to discuss Twitter. I think it's obvious there who's being let back on the platform and how that's a problem. And so the platforms don't seem to have learned from past mistakes. And we're not really seeing the kind of content moderation efforts that we would have hoped would have stuck after January 6th, right? Like we saw in the, in the wake of, of the attack on the Capitol, we saw a telegram deleting a bunch of far-right extremist channels. We saw Parler lose its its domain. We saw obviously Twitter and, and Meta taking proactive, well, reactive action. But all of that has kind of seemed to either fallen by the wayside or a lot of those actions have been just straight up reversed. And with twenty the 2024 election looming, that doesn't bode well. And especially in the monitoring I do now as part of my, my job with DFR Lab is we're seeing obviously increasingly violent language used about members of the LGBTQ community. And we have people showing up armed at drag brunches and just... And and all of that coordination is happening in online, or a lot of the coordination is happening on online platforms. And it, yeah, just it doesn't look great for democracy and with an election looming. What do you think are the major factors influencing decision making in this respect? Because I guess Twitter is a dramatic example of the you know CEO pointing the company in a particular direction and, and seemingly advertisers abandoning it. So it wouldn't seem to be a great commercial decision, but nonetheless, that's persisting. I guess I'm also asking, how can members of the public hold these tech platforms to account? I don't know as much about the inner workings of trust and safety departments within various, or trust and safety teams within various platforms to really kind of pontificate about what goes on. Between what the January 6th investigation yielded and combined with the the few conversations I have had with those folks or the conversations I've had with people who work really closely with those teams, there's definitely a desire by trust and safety staff to make things better, to make the platforms better. The people who tend to work on trust and safety teams are extremism experts, are people who care a lot about preventing online discourse from manifesting in offline violence or scary offline policies that target marginalized groups. So there's definitely a will there for a lot of these trust, trust and safety teams, but, but there does appear to be a breakdown between trust and safety teams and then the powers that be that run the respective platforms. And I think that, yeah, goes back to kind of the fear of, of conservative rep- reprisals. And to that, I say conservatives are going to accuse you of censorship, whether you actually remove their content or not. They, they've been positioning themselves as victims of censorship and victims of cancel culture that doesn't exist for years. And so to the companies, I would say you might as well moderate content because when you don't, it has real world effects. And we've seen this in on January 8th in Brazil. We've seen this on January 6th in the US. We see this at you know every Saturday when there's a drag brunch. We see this constantly. And so to the companies, I guess that would be my response. And from, you know, to the public, I don't, I'm going to be honest, I don't have an answer. I honestly haven't given it that much thought because when I write analysis, I tend to gear it toward researchers or 
frankly, tech platforms in the hopes that they will you know, learn something from the analysis, like learn about a new trend or a new symbol or a new narrative that they should be keeping an eye out for. As far as yeah, gearing things towards the public candidly, I don't know if that's something that I, I think about as often as I should. One of the things that we saw on J6 was there were people that came to the Capitol clearly intending to do some violence against you know, the people that work there. It seemed like perhaps the the will of the crowd didn't quite, you know, spill in that direction, maybe through pure chance and maybe it just wasn't quite there. But uh, did you find that those people that turned up were part of an organised group or was it just that they were sort of random people that had all been motivated by the same desire to do some harm? Oh, wow. This is my favorite question. Thank you so much for asking this. So something that Alex Newhouse, who I know has, has been on this podcast, he and I basically yelled this at various team members and members of Congress, anyone who we worked with on the committee, really, uh, for the better part of a year, we were just constantly reminding them that the threat is the network. And and far-right extremism domestically and transnationally, you know, named organizations and kind of the, the boundaries around them don't really mean as much as they did once upon a time in this landscape. The way that groups interacted, you know, in the, in, throughout the 20th century was that, especially, you know, obviously 60s and 70s, people were card-carrying members of groups. And now we see this kind of flowing between groups, but also we see these huge groups of people who are radicalized and mobilized without being members of groups. These folks are linked to kind of loose, amorphous networks that tend to operate largely online. And when they do organize and coalesce, they're doing so around narratives rather than organizational doctrine or organizational goals that are stated in like a mission statement. And I I think that is an uncomfortable truth for people to reconcile with. And I think that's why we didn't see much of that discussed in the final committee report. If, if you had a chance to review the report, you see a lot of discussion about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and these you know, distinct organizations. But most of the people who carried out acts of violence on January 6th, most of the people who showed up on January 6th, they were just Trump supporters. They weren't Oath Keepers or Proud Boys or militia members. And, and they may share beliefs with those people, but they weren't ordered there by some like master chief commander, you know, fascist who was telling them what to do. They were mobilized there by a shared belief, which was to usurp the U.S. Constitution, the peaceful transition of power and keep Donald Trump in power at all costs. And ultimately, yeah, when it comes down to it, I mean, we've, we've broken down the groups of people who showed up on January 6th into kind of four different categories. When I say we, I mean, Alex Newhouse and I, and the majority of the people there were just mega. They were just Trump supporters. And that's, that does not bode well for, you know, mainstream, the mainstream Republican party, because that's their people, that's their voters. And to condemn them and their actions on that day is something that I would imagine a lot of sitting members of Congress would feel uncomfortable with, for obvious reasons. One flag that I noticed being flown at J6 was the an appeal to heaven flag, which is a, a revolutionary war flag that I guess it has a pine tree on it. It's, and, you know, the appeal to heaven that is being referred to on the flag is, you know, appealing to heaven by introducing British soldiers to God directly. So it's sort of an inherently violent <laughs> sort of message. And I was surprised to find when I looked into it that 
it's been embraced by the Republican Party, this appeal to heaven in terms of Christian nationalism. Could you speak a little bit about maybe the impact that Christian nationalism had on J6? Christian nationalists are one of the most represented movements. I was going to say groups, but that is a misnomer. One of the largest representations of folks on January 6th was definitely Christian nationalists. And we had a diverse array of of individuals, organizations, and people representing this movement who are committed to interpretations of Christian nationalism and kind of the apocalyptic theology that kind of inherently goes along with that in the attack on the Capitol. And we're seeing these these Christian nationalists going beyond merely arguing that the U.S. is a Christian nation, which is a pretty common argument by large swaths of the United States. But these folks are rejecting democracy as anti-Christian, and they're advocating for this divinely ordained theocratic or otherwise authoritarian government. And so obviously, like I said, we we have the QAnon folks who showed up. I can go into obviously how bloodthirsty and apocalyptic and aggressively anti-Semitic that worldview is. But on top of the QAnon folks, you know, we had folks showing up with, you know, flags with the Crusader cross, the flag you mentioned, and we're seeing these, ex- this is extremist iconography and these extreme symbols being adopted as slogans of this contemporary and on like largely online Christian far right. And what we found was that these symbols seem to be used to kind of communicate a commitment to this grand religious quote unquote clash of civilizations between perceived enemies and the Christian West. And we're seeing more and more folks who embrace the Christian nationalist worldview use the, this symbolism with more overt promotions of physical violence against religious minorities and, and political opponents. And when you have this kind of, you know, we have sitting, like I said, sitting members of Congress, sitting senators, past presidents who tap into those narratives, even if they do so with, you know, coded language and dog whistles, or obviously more overt embracing of these ideologies where you have, you know, Donald Trump and members of his family and other members of other politicians outwardly endorsing QAnon, using QAnon symbology. It is just further allowing these straight up dangerous apocalyptic worldviews to be increasingly mainstreamed and for people to think that it's okay to hold these beliefs when it's not because they are fundamentally extremist. I'm wondering if you can maybe elaborate a little more on that in terms of, I wonder, because you've written about accelerationism in a different context and as I understand it, the accelerationists reject the notion that there's a political solution to their problems. Do Christian nationalists, do they similarly reject democracy? And what do you see as being, if any, the connections between this movement and the other sorts of groups and movements you've examined under the umbrella of accelerationism? Yeah, for sure. Great question. So for, at ARC, we we characterize militant accelerationism as a set of tactics and strategies designed to put pressure on or exacerbate kind of these latent social divisions, often through violence and therefore hastening societal collapse. And to your point, kind of the slogan, there is no political solution, is a kind of rallying cry for a lot of folks who hold or who who buy into that set of tactics and the notion that 
they can hasten societal collapse. And what we saw on January 6th was these increasing numbers of seemingly everyday Americans reject a democratic outcome because they didn't like it and because they viewed that outcome as an existential threat to everything that they believe in and to the light, their lifestyles and, you know, to uh, America as they know it. And so when someone is telling you that everything you love and value is at risk and political outcomes can't be trusted and therefore voting is useless and the only thing you can do to protect the things you care about and the people you love and the values you hold dear is to take up arms against your own government, you're going to do that. I'm not saying it's right, of course, but we did see, obviously, like I said, these a lot of these people were just grandparents, you know, like people's parents, grandparents, just everyday Americans who genuinely believed that they were facing an existential crisis and who bought into a formerly kind of accelerationist rallying cry that was relegated to the fringes, which was that there is no political solution. And therefore, the kind of last opportunity to fight is to do exactly that and is to fight and to take up arms. And essentially, where accelerationists come into play is that they see these acts of political violence as sparks kind of for a much bigger purpose, right? Whether it's provoking civil war, race war, et cetera. And what we saw on January 6th was a lot of everyday people taking up tenets of that worldview. And that is never a good thing where you have large swaths of the American public believing that their vote doesn't matter because of widespread election fraud and that democracy is bad or democracy isn't real. And therefore, political violence is the only solution. There's been some discussion in the media recently about the the idea of the election being stolen. There's the lawsuit against Fox News from the Dominion voting systems, where they've discovered that you know huge amounts of people pushing the lie that the election was stolen on Fox News mm-hmm. didn't believe that at all. <laughs> I mean, what can, what can be done about that? Yeah, that's a... <laughs> Great question. I think, and this is one of the issues I did have with the final report. So one of the recommendations that was provided by the January 6th committee was essentially that reminding people that they have agency and the committee basically said that we agree that individuals remain responsible for their own actions, including their own criminal actions, but congressional committees of jurisdiction should continue to evaluate policies of media companies that have had the effect of radicalizing their consumers, including by provoking people to attack their own country. Not exactly a tangible solution, basically passing off the onus to other committees or to, to other agencies that can regulate media. Um, and that doesn't bode well, because yes, while people do have agency, and it was people who decided to believe what they heard on Fox News and people who decided to show up on the Capitol and murder cops or members of Congress, what we found when we were doing this analysis of not just social media platforms, but also various forms of legacy media, which obviously would largely include cable television, and we did spend a lot of time analyzing Fox News in between the election and January 6th. And what we saw was just kind of this 
transcendence of narratives across the entirety of the ecosystem. So what was being said on Fox News was also being said in Facebook groups, which was also being said on Twitter, which was also being said on the Donald.win. And so people who were part of this ecosystem in some form, whether it was you know, grandparents just watching Fox News all day, also keeping in mind that this was during COVID. So people were mostly sitting inside watching TV or on their computers anyway, make really, which really exacerbated kind of just the sheer volume of this these narratives that they were inundated with on a regular basis. But what we saw was just kind of this people being bombarded from all sides with the narrative that the election was stolen. And ultimately, Fox News played a role in pushing insurrectionary narratives, in pushing that existential crisis narrative that I mentioned earlier, in basically saying that civil war was inevitable. Apologize for the sirens <laughs> passing by. But essentially, they, they, they absolutely played a role. And even though multiple people have, and, and organizations, and like you, you mentioned this lawsuit, so many people have pointed the finger at Fox News but they're not changing anything. If I mean, like Roseanne Barr was on there last week saying essentially that people should rise up against their state capitals because the people shouldn't take it anymore and should, you know, take action against their their state governments. That's I mean, that's the exact kind of language that we saw in the lead up to January 6th also on Fox News. So Fox News hasn't learned a thing. If anything, they're obviously continuing to push these or allow these narratives, whether or not they're pushing them, they're allowing their guests to come on and share them as well. And even the comment section on like Fox News clips on YouTube, just the same kind of insurrectionary, anti-democratic language that we've been seeing from people who engage with Fox News and other, you know, right-wing media outlets for years. Um, I don't know much about media regulation. That feels like a great question for Nicole Hemmer or, or someone, or, you know, AJ Bauer or one of the other scholars who engages with these, these issues. But I think people tend to hyper-focus on social media as kind of the, the cause of all of the ills in society without really grappling with the fact that the most popular news channel in America is responsible for spreading insurrectionary and insightful language and narratives and just straight up disinformation has resulted in people getting hurt or killed. Megan, you've recently put out a call for chapter abstracts for a, a new book through Routledge uh, about banal fascism. I was wondering, uh, could you tell us what banal fascism is? I feel like we've just been discussing it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we have been, I feel like, dancing around the without saying it. But yeah, banal fascism, it's something that my colleague Hannah Stiverson and I started formulating as a concept of probably about a year and a half ago. And obviously, once I joined the committee, any concept concept of free time went out the window. So it kind of it kind of took a back seat. But now that I have my life back, uh, this is something we've we've been working on building out. And essentially, what we've found is that when you talk to people about fascism, People have a really hard time defining it. And, and that's not anyone's fault, right? There's so many different philosophers and scholars and activists and researchers who all have their own view, um, or own definition of what fascism looks like and how it manifests. And obviously that definition has shifted for a lot of people over time. I know that a lot of people still view it within the context of, you know, Hitler or Mussolini. And 
essentially, we are trying to provide an updated framework through which people can analyze fascism. And our argument, which we're admittedly still grappling with, which is partially why we put out this this call for chapters for this this edited volume, because we we think that this is definitely something that should be inherently collaborative when it comes to something that affects so many people, is we're, we're grappling with the notion of, is fascism more banal, more everyday than it used to be? Um, and that's why it's it's especially insidious is because it's kind of creeping into these aspects of society that it wasn't able to previously, whether that's you know, because of social media or legacy media or or politicians being more comfortable using fascist talking points, or is fascism inherently banal to some degree, which is why it was able to seep into the everyday in, in various countries over, you know, the last however many decades. So that's something we're grappling with. And and essentially this this theory was born from Michael Billig, uh, who's a scholar at Loughborough University, I want to say. Back in 1995, he put out this concept of banal nationalism. And so our, our framework is, is stemming from that. And based on the response we've seen so far, people seem to be really excited to contribute and help us, yeah, better develop and cultivate this, this updated framework through which we can all understand fascism and its various manifestations. In terms of accelerationism, it's often understood as being an attack on liberal democracy and a conscious and deliberate one. But I guess I wonder to what extent is its relative popularity, the ways in which this seems to resonate among a proportion of Trumpists and so on, would you view it as being in that sense a symptom of the degeneration of liberal democracy? Because as you've noted, many consumers of Fox News and so on are convinced that authorities aren't responsive, that radical change is necessary. So how do you situate accelerationism in terms of um, its place within liberal democracy? Ultimately, accelerationism and kind of the the doctrine that tends to drive it or kind of overlap with it, it's it's fundamentally anti-democratic and anti-liberal and anti-modernity. And what we're seeing is when, when people do take up arms, whether it's against the U.S. government or against, you know, people praying in a mosque or in a synagogue or in a black church or, like I mentioned earlier, showing up armed to drag brunches, what we're, we're seeing is kind of this mass mobilization of folks in pursuit of a reactionary worldview that rejects liberalism, rejects modernity and all that comes with it. And in the context of many Western countries, what they're also rejecting is multiracial democracy, progress for historically marginalized groups. And anyone who is pursuing that progress is seen as an enemy to the world that they are actively seeking to create. And for them, the sooner that they can undermine trust in liberal democratic institutions, whether that's the media, whether that's the government, the sooner they can convince people that there is no political solution. And the best way is just to start fresh, start new. And in order to start a fresh, you know, to start a new, you, they would need to obviously destroy society as we know it. And so I think, obviously, trust in democratic institutions like the media and the government have been dwindling for decades. And And obviously, I'm talking about within the context of the US, but this definitely seems to be a very widespread challenge that we're facing. And that just that rejection of 
these key facets of democracy, whether that's participation of citizens by, you know, and their ability or attempts to undermine that through voter suppression, gerrymandering, their attempts to undermine trust in media and, and, po- and positioning media as the enemies, which obviously we have mainstream politicians doing that as well. Um, we have people undermining confidence in free and fair elections. Uh, we have people who straight up tried to stop the peaceful transition of power. These are all key tenets of democracy. And the fact that all of those are the rejection of all of those is becoming increasingly mainstream, provides an opening for people who buy into accelerationism to make accelerationist narratives and accelerationist views more palatable to the masses, which obviously does not bode well. Megan, can you just elaborate a little on the specific role of the great replacement thesis in accelerationism? Yeah, I think this is just yet another narrative that has become so palatable to the masses and so mainstream. And actually, um, Yevin Wan um, from Moonshot and I actually just had a piece published late on Friday in Vox Paul about a Washington Post headline that fundamentally mischaracterized the what the article was saying in the Washington Post. But the headline was essentially claiming that the white population is decreasing under Biden and his plans for the census. And of course, we saw that within a few days circulating around like Terrorgram and neo-Nazi telegram channels and, you know, it being posted on Gab and, and other far-right platforms. And that's the, the secret behind it is, I mean, it, there's no mystery behind why that's, that's spreading and why people saw that headline and were like, oh, heck yeah, this further evidences our worldview that there is some conspiracy where white people are being intentionally replaced by minorities in order to change the demographics of a country and therefore change voting outcomes with the belief that, you know, non-white groups tend to vote for for dem- the Democratic Party um, or left-wing parties, and depending on what country you're in. And it's so, the, the great replacement theory and other theories surrounding, you know, or that are centered around white replacement are so powerful because they tap into that perceived victimhood that so many white people, it, it really resonates with them. And, and we see it every day on Fox News. We see it every day when, you know, when people cry cancel culture, when people cry, you know, claim that people are, you know, that members of the LGBTQ community are groomers. When they claim that Sam Smith performing at the Grammys a song called Unholy, where they were dressed in obviously like devil attire is embrace of Satanism that threatens everything we hold dear. All of that is rooted in this in the sense of victimhood. And the great replacement theory is just an, another kind of narrative that that helps people position themselves as victims. And what's really powerful is when people position themselves as victims, it justifies react like a, a reaction, a strong reaction, because if you're acting in self-defense, who can argue with you, right? And ultimately, the weaponization of that victimhood tends to result in violence and, and taking up arms and targeting people who they believe are the ones responsible for victimizing them and, and oppressing them. And we saw that on January 6th. And we see it, um, you know, we saw it it echoes throughout every manifesto we've read recently, whether it was the El Paso shooter manifesto, the Christchurch shooter manifesto, the, you know, the materials found 
from the, the Buffalo shooter. All of them are kind of underpinned by this notion of victimhood and that they were preventing the replacement of, of white people by marginalized groups or, in their view, non-white groups who were taking over their respective countries. Megan, just finally, the disinformation slash misinformation space has been sort of politicized of late. Uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Nina Jankovic, was briefly a disinformation czar and uh, was became a target of the yeah. of the right wing outrage machine. I was wondering, how has it been for you personally as, you know, working as a Fed on the uh, January 6th committee? Did, did you find the committee was targeted? Uh, how was it for you? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I actually, considering I am a woman in this field, I'm actually shocked. I haven't be, been more of an individual target. Not an invitation uh, for anyone listening. But, like, I, I think... Um, it's it's really interesting who becomes um, a, a target and obviously tends to be women and uh, people of color or anyone in the LGBTQ community and or Jewish people. Really, it's it's a mess. But I think with the January 6th committee, what was interesting when I was monitoring that space online, you know, to see who was talking about the committee itself and, and to kind of assess if there were any threats to, you know, the people I work with. The focus tended to be less on individual staffers. We were kind of, it seems like we were largely viewed as like cogs in the machine. And most of the threats were centered on Liz Cheney, um, Adam Kinzinger, you know, the, the so-called rhinos, right, um, who were viewed as traitors to, to the Republican Party. Of course, there were threats or, you know, horrible things said about various members of Congress who were, who were on the committee or were seen to have, you know, be assisting the committee's work. But it did seem like, because we were generally anonymous when it came to actually doing the investigation, that we seemed to make it out relatively unscathed. That said, some of the folks, the lawyers especially, who were responsible for subpoenaing various folks, like one of my colleagues, uh, when he sent the subpoena to, to Ron Watkins, his response was to publish the email like on his or, or post it on his Telegram channel, and it had you know the name and contact or, you know, well, work contact information for one of my colleagues. And, and, and of course, my colleague was justifiably freaked out about that. But it wasn't like nothing came of it. So I think and I don't, I'll never really understand the reasons behind why certain people um, respond uh, so strongly to certain people who work in the space versus others, um, beyond obviously the caveats I mentioned earlier in terms of, of who the targets tend to be. Um, but yeah, I will say that we were very lucky in terms of individuals on working on the committee, investigators and investigative counsel seeming to make it out relatively unscathed. Whereas the members who are more high profile doing the speaking at the hearings and whatnot, they tended to be um, the recipients of a lot more violent and aggressive rhetoric. Uh, well, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Megan. Uh, if people want to find you on Twitter, you are at Megan E. Conroy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, Andy, that's the show. We will be back next week. As a reminder, of course, uh, that it's still subscriber month here on 3CR. So if you want to support the station, you can head over to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. See you later. See you later.
know that 3CR received its community radio license in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station, and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.